He was born into a dirt-poor family in Oklahoma. His father and grandfather would teach him to play the fiddle and hoped that his natural talent would save him from an impoverished life. John Cooley was able to get his son lessons to learn to play classical violin and cello, as well as read music, and he showed a natural flair for composing and musical arrangements. It would be these gifts that would launch their son, Danell Clyde Cooley, to stardom and beyond. He became known as Spade Cooley. This nickname was bestowed upon him at a poker game one night when he drew a straight flush in spades, three times. He took it as a sign of luck that his life was about to change. Call it luck, call it talent, call it hard work. Any way you look at it, Spade Cooley was on his way to be a household name. But despite all the talent, and the luck, and the hard work, and all the great achievements he acquired in his life, it's none of those things that Spade Cooley is remembered for. It's the brutal beating of his wife, Ella May. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person when studying the many facets of history likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found in my bag of bones. Growing up in Oregon, he fell in love with Ann Johnson, and when he was 18 years old, they eloped as she was carrying his firstborn, John. They made their way to California, as he says, quote, with a fiddle under one arm and a nickel in my pocket, end quote. In the 1930s, he began playing at every gig he could get. He was a quick study, and since he could read music, he was an easy choice for many bands at the time. He would say, quote, Playing the fiddle was as much of a part of my life as breathing. I was knee-high to a stump in playing the fiddle, and my daddy played the fiddle, and so did my granddad before him. So I came by it naturally, and later on I got it in my head, the idea to be making money because being born poor and staying poor and being satisfied with it wasn't how I saw living out the rest of my natural life." He made his way to Los Angeles and was able to find work as a fiddle player in the band known as Sons of the Pioneers. Yep, this was the group that made Roy Rogers a star. He had already moved on to his movie career by this time, but would occasionally come back around to visit his friends. There, Roy Rogers met Spade Cooley. More than one person noticed a resemblance between the two, and just like that, Spade Cooley became the stunt double for Roy Rogers. In addition to his occasional film work, Cooley found plenty of gigs on the booming L.A. club circuit, including Riders of the Purple Sage, with Cal Schramm, in which he was featured on his first recording in 1941, but luck was with him when he fell in with the Jimmy Wakeley Band. The Wakeley Band would regularly play at the Argonne Ballroom at the Venice Pier in Santa Monica. When Jimmy Wakeley landed a movie contract and a recording contract with Decca, it left his space as bandleader wide open. Cooley was invited to step in. Spade took his new role seriously, knowing that this was his chance to make it. 
He upgraded the look of the band. He went out and hired new musicians who were at the top of their field, whether they were in the same genre or not. He recognized talent and was willing to pay. He'd bring these new musicians in, dress them up in fancy new duds, and give them catchy cowboy names. He always had a beautiful girl singer, and his compositions of mixing a bit of classic country with a bit of jazz helped to expand on the newfound craze of swing music. In 1940s Hollywood, country and western music was second only to Nashville. Talent poured into Los Angeles for their big break in the singing cowboy westerns being produced at all the major studios. Cooley grew his band to become one of the hottest acts in California. His main competition in the band world, you might say, was the Bob Willis Band and the Texas Playboys. But, according to a friendly contest that pitted the Cooley Orchestra against the Texas Playboys, the people spoke and chose Spade Cooley as the king of western swing. According to an article by Kurt Wolf in Country Music, The Rough Guide, he explains, quote, the Hollywood socialite and his orchestra were nowhere near as rowdy and loose around the edges as the great Texas swing bands of the 1930s. Cooley perfected a smoother, cooler, and in many ways slicker sound that was far more orchestrated than the music of Bob Wills or Milton Brown. End quote. The label of the style of Western swing, not to mention being the king of Western swing, embraced the sound that was selling tickets, records, movies, and taking Cooley to the top. He got his first taste of some big screen action when he appeared in the Gene Autry film Home in Wyoming in 1942. Spade Cooley hired Tex Williams in 1943 to be the voice of the band, which was by now a full-fledged orchestra and was ready to sign their first recording contract with OK Records. Somewhere around this time, he had hired the beautiful blonde clarinet player Ella Mae Evans and quickly promoted her to the girl singer role, even though she didn't have the talent to back it up. Luckily for the band, the two were married despite their 15-year age difference, and after a quickie divorce from his wife in 1945, once Ella Mae was pregnant with their first child, Spade sent her home to fulfill her duties as a stay-at-home wife and mother. In 1944, the song Shame on You was released and became a major hit throughout 1945. This would become his signature song, along with songs like Detour, Crazy Cause I Love You, and Forgive Me One More Time, it is said that this compilation of songs signifies Spade's best work. With Cooley's musical arrangements and Tex Williams' smooth voice, six of his songs all became top ten hits. Not only did it raise Cooley's star, but it also got Tex Williams more attention than Cooley would have liked. Williams went on to have a solid solo career with recording deals and movie contracts of his own. Spade didn't have time to worry about Tex, though. He was busy building his own fame and fortune. He was now appearing in several movies. Not so much as an actor, but if you've seen any of the singing cowboy flicks, it follows much the same outline. The star of the movie, who most likely is the singing cowboy, and just by chance happens to run into his old buddy Spade. Hey, looks like the gang's all here. Let's break out into a random yet well-rehearsed song. Why, sure, famous singer-turned-actor. I just happen to bring along my fiddle. And the proverbial hoedown ensues. A good time is had by all.
By this time, there wasn't much missing from Spade Cooley's life. He had his orchestra and a radio program called the Spade Cooley Time. He was a famous movie star actor with over 30 film credits, had a beautiful wife and two kids, cars, home, a closet full of fancy cowboy duds. But there was just one more thing. Cooley wanted to tap into the newest craze, and that was television. Spade Cooley was a likable character. He was charming and charismatic. He was always smiling and was one of those guys who could put their hand on your shoulder as he spoke to you and not feel creepy. His fancy outfits and perky musical arrangements and upbeat personality made him a face the camera loved and a persona that people happily brought into their homes. In 1947, Spade Cooley was the first host of the Hoffman Hayride television variety series on KTLA. The station's advertisement billed it as, quote, Spade Cooley's formula for a show with top musical entertainment, a dash of western flavor, and a good sprinkling of comedy has proven to be just what the viewers ordered. Spade Cooley dominated the ratings for the small screen for the next ten years. Ratings began to decline, but he convinced the station to give him a stab at his own show, The Spade Cooley Show. All new numbers, all new guests, and he replaced his entire orchestra with an all-girl band. Despite a strong beginning and a dynamic guest list, the show didn't even last a year. During the 1950s, the nude music dynamic was switching from swing to rock and roll and try as he might to morph into the new sound as evidenced by his last record called Rocking the Square Dance, Spade Cooley did not fit into this new era. His recording contract did not renew. His movie contract did not renew. There were no band gigs, and now he was without a television show. Cooley was not down yet. He had a new idea that would take his fame into the future. Hello listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. In 1960, Spade Cooley turned 50 years old and decided that maybe it was time for him to retire. But in no way did he see himself ready for the rocking chair. He started scooping up land near his home in Willow Springs in the Mojave Desert. It was in 1955 that Disneyland opened in Anaheim, California to raving fans, and Spade was paying attention. It seemed to Cooley that the idea that was rattling around in the back of his head since Disney's opening was ready to be brought to life. Introducing Water Wonderland. Picture this. In the middle of the Mojave Desert, there, waiting for your arrival, an oasis. A huge lake for water skiing, boat races, a massive concert hall, and hotels for guests. Over 1,000-acre theme park all of its own. He created and registered his business. He gathered partners and investors, 
also bringing in his manager, Bobby Bennett, along to continue her management of his affairs, <laughs> literally and financially. Everyone believed that his water wonderland could actually be something spectacular, but he just couldn't keep his mind in the game. By this time, Spade Cooley wasn't even attempting to hide his drinking problem. He increased the high by popping pills as chasers, and this only accelerated his fits of rage. Life at home was no picnic either. Spade Cooley's on-screen life was nothing compared to his home life. He was a jealous husband and always assumed that his wife was having an affair, or multiple affairs. Probably, since he was busy with a different woman every night, he assumed she was too. His longtime manager, Bobby Bennett, claimed that she had to pay for 10 abortions in one year alone, and several underage hush money claims, and was constantly cleaning up messes that resulted from his drinking and sexual encounters. He kept his wife and children far away from the curious eyes of reporters and away from the bustle of Los Angeles. Ella May Cooley was basically a prisoner in her own home. He had begun abusing her shortly after they were married, and she attempted escape several times, always ending up with him retrieving her and bringing her back home, threatening to kill her if she ever left him. For clarity's sake, during this time, women had no outlet to seek safety from domestic abuse. Ella May admitted herself into the hospital for a nervous breakdown, and she confessed to the nurses that she was terrified to go back home. But at the end of her stay, she had to get in the car with him. With perhaps some advice such as, just avoid him until he calms down. Domestic issues were not considered a legal matter at the time. It was just something to be taken care of within the home, and the wife was just shy of being called property. It was up to the man to treat his wife in any way that he felt fit to deal with the situation, and she was to take it and never discuss it outside the home. This is one of the reasons it has been so difficult to reform and break the stereotype of domestic abuse in the home. It is so ingrained in the culture of American women. So everyone knew. The hospital nurses, her family, his friends and partners. But there was nothing anyone could do for her. It was a family matter. The more he drank, the more delusional he became, and he worked himself up into believing that she was having an affair with two of their male friends that happened to be in a relationship with each other. He beat her until she confessed about the affair. He beat her and forced her to call her family, his friends, a private investigator, and even his divorce lawyer confessing that she was cheating on him. He beat her into submission and forced her to sign away her rights to all of the property and assets the couple had. She was also induced to sign empty deeds. He told her that he was filing for divorce, and while she was forced to stay in the room, he called the woman he was currently having an affair with, Anita Iros, and told her that he was leaving his wife and that they could soon be married. He ended up calling her back later, after wrenching his daughter's arm behind her back and forcing her to tell Anita that she was looking forward to having her as her new mother. The money was going fast. The stress of his new endeavor was mounting. The alcohol wasn't enough to silence the demons in his head, and his wife, he was sure, was involved in a sex-cult love triangle 
and was sneaking off to have threesomes in seedy motels. The investigator he hired would be bringing him news about what he's found any day now. Spade Cooley would later testify in court, quote, She told me about a love cult she had joined. She described her initiation at length. It was with two men in a motel near our home. It included unnatural sex acts. I hit her. The next thing I can recollect, I saw her half on the bed and half on the floor. I must have hurt her terribly. I have a hazy recollection that it was an animal, not Ella May. I can only say that when she told me about the love cult, rockets went off in my brain. My head was literally on fire. End quote. April 3rd, 1961. Cooley lost control, and his young wife paid the price. The events of the last few hours of Ella May's life were brutal. The torture continued for hours. It didn't stop even when his 14-year-old daughter came home. He made her watch as the final blows were delivered. She escaped in fear for her life while he took a phone call. It was the private investigator telling Cooley that he could find no evidence of his wife having an affair of any kind. He paused long enough to conduct a meeting with his manager that came to his home. When he took a moment to go check on her, it wasn't until then he realized he may have gone too far. What comes next are some direct statements from the actual court case, and there are definitely some things that will be uncomfortable. So this is your warning of the graphic content that is coming your way following this break. I won't be offended if you just want to fast forward this part. You've all survived history class. My history education was all about cramming dates and names and battles into my teenage brain in order to pass the newest test to make the school look good. I didn't really enjoy history until I was able to revisit it and see that history was made up of people just like me. They had struggles, they had joy, they had sadness, and they felt victories. It became so very real to me. And now, I'm on a mission to revisit as much history as I can. Hello, my name's Elizabeth Bougeret. I'm a full-time author and a full-time traveler, and I would love to share what I'm learning with you. Come with me. See my sights and stories as I go. I love history now. Real history. Not just the dates and battles. And I've discovered that others do too. So, I've created a group in Facebook, and I'd love for you to join me on my travels and adventures. Let me reintroduce you to a history that's made up of people, places, adventures. I'll even throw in a few battles for good measure. If you love American history with a side of travel, I'm sure you'll enjoy this group. Join me over there. Search the Facebook groups for History Revisited, I'm the one with the blue feather, or Type in historyrevisited.info in the search bar and then join in on the adventure. And so I can be sure to welcome you properly, be sure to say hello. Spade Cooley came out of the bedroom, which they sometimes refer to as the den, and said he thinks LMA is hurt. Bobby Bennett rose from the table to go check on his wife. He knew that she was dead, 
just by looking at her. She was laying in their bed with the covers drawn up to her neck. There was blood all around the room, and a pool of blood could be seen on the pillow. She had a swollen black eye, and her hair was wet and matted against her head. She told Spade that he needed to call an ambulance. He refused, but did allow her to call nurse and family friend Dorothy Davis. When Dorothy arrived, she told Cooley that his wife was dead, but he refused to believe it. He did finally call for an ambulance, which arrived around 11.30. Cooley rode in the ambulance to the hospital. Ella Mae Cooley was pronounced dead on arrival at 12.20 a.m., April 4, 1961. The police interrogated Spade Cooley, and everything was polite and non-confrontational, with the exception that Cooley's hands were bruised and swollen, but he couldn't recall how they got that way. I may have slapped her, he said, but I did not hit her with my fists. I listened to that first interrogation interview, and it was prior to the police seeing the body and prior to them seeing the crime scene. I am quite sure the interview would have gone differently if they had all the details. The investigator for the trial, Leonard Winters, had stated, quote, When he was arrested, he couldn't wait to talk. He wanted to tell them the whole story. Not the true story, of course, but he thought he could talk himself out of it. End quote. The day of April 3rd had started with a business associate of Spades living in a trailer on the ranch, Gerald Enfield. He would tell investigators that Cooley looked for any excuse to talk about his wife's infidelity. On this particular day, Spade told Gerald that he finally got a written confession from Ella May proving her affair. Gerald looked at the confession and said, quote, Yes, it's Ella May's handwriting, Spade, but I know how you got it, end quote. He claimed that Spade replied, quote, What difference does that make? End quote. The day continues with meetings that included whiskey and arguments. Spade was trying to convince his friends to go and beat up the men he assumed his wife was having the affair with, but no one would take him up on the offer. Spade was alone with his wife in their home from 5.45 p.m. until 8 p.m. when his manager would come by for their previously scheduled meeting, and with the exception of their daughter Melody coming home for a brief window of time, but I'm not certain of how long she stayed inside the home. The court documents reveal the following. Spade Cooley admitted on the stand that before Melody arrived, he struck and knocked the victim to the floor while they were in the living room, and that he also struck her while they were in the bedroom. The savagery of the attacks can be pieced together from the injuries inflicted and the physical evidence found at the scene. The body had fresh bruises and abrasions on it from head to toe and there was testimony that the essential wounds could not have been caused either by a fall in the shower or a previous fall from an automobile. The body had dried blood at the hairline, a black eye, discoloration of the nose, dried blood across the nose, discoloration of the lips, small splits in the lips, small cracks on the chin, discoloration of the neck, and abrasion in the breast area, bruises on the arms, ribs, hips, abdomen, and hair missing from the top and the forward part of the head. There was bleeding above the surface of the brain, as shown by the autopsy. The body had complex abdominal injuries, particularly the hemorrhage, due to a split in the abdominal aorta, which was the cause of death in the opinion of the people's experts. 
Aside from any testimony by Melody, the eyewitness, who said that she saw the defendant drag the victim by her hair, bang her head against the floor, stamp her in the abdomen with his booted foot, and put a cigarette on the victim's breast, the condition of the body indicates that Ella May was badly injured, that a nipple of her breast was partly torn away, that a broom handle had been forcibly thrust into both her vaginal and anal orifices, that she was choked, her head banged violently on the floor, and her abdomen stamped on. There are bloodstains on the floor in the living room. A broken cup in the living room contained bloodstains and female hair which resemble the victim's. In the bedroom, there were bloodstains on the floor, in front of the desk, impact or splatter-type bloodstains on the pillowcase, on the sheets, and on the box spring cover of the bed. And on a water tumbler on the desk, there were bloodstains on a rifle in the bedroom and on the upper part of an ashtray stand, as well as blood spatter on the bedroom walls and the defendant's trousers. Deep bruising of the muscles of the neck, a break in the hyoid bone, and a break in the thyroid cartilage in the front of the victim's windpipe indicate that she was strangled. A clump of hair forcibly removed from her head was found near the foot of the bed. Contact bloodstains on the bedding were consistent with mutilation of the anal and vaginal area with the broom handle. When Melody arrived at the house, Cooley was talking on the telephone, and she heard him say, Beal, don't call the police. The evidence shows that there was a Beale Whitlock who was a friend and a business associate. His daughter testified that at the time he was dressed in tan cord pants and black boots and that he was sweaty. Melody asked him, quote, are the police coming? He said, yes, they will be here in a minute, all over here in a minute. Come here, I want you to see your mother, end quote. As they went through the living room, Melody saw tables shoved up on one another, a broken glass on a table, and a bottle of whiskey. They entered the bedroom, but her mother was not there. Instead, she saw blood-stained sheets. Cooley walked into the bathroom and said, Get up, Ella May. Melody is here. When the victim did not answer, the defendant dragged the nude body out of the shower by the hair and banged her head on the floor twice, causing internal injuries and hemorrhaging. The victim uttered no sound and made no movement. He said, quote, Melody, I'll give you three minutes to get her off the floor or I'll kill her if you don't get her up, end quote. He went into the living room and began a countdown, calling out, One minute left. Half a minute left, Melody. Melody tried to raise her mother but was unable to do so as she was limp. Finally, Cooley said, Time's up, Melody, and he strode into the room with a rifle in his hand. He made his daughter sit down in a chair and said, All right, Melody, you are going to watch me kill her. With that statement, Cooley stamped the victim in the abdomen with his boot. Contusions in the abdomen area indicate three applications of force. This stamping split the victim's abdominal aorta, and the resultant hemorrhage caused her death in approximately 20 minutes, in the opinion of expert witnesses. After he stamped on her, Cooley stooped down by the victim and said, We'll just see if you're dead. He called her a slut. Then he knelt down and touched the nipples of both her breasts with his lit cigarette. Melody started to run, but her father grabbed her and said, All right, I'll give you two more minutes to get her off the floor. Then the phone rang. He answered it and carried on a conversation on it. Then he returned to the bedroom and said, Come on, Melody, I won't touch her anymore, sexual-wise. The defendant then took Melody into the living room, made her sit on his lap, 
kissed her passionately, and touched her breast. He told her he was going to turn all his love over to her and to Donnell Jr. as their mother had crushed him. The telephone rang again. It was Billy Lewis, the private investigator. Cooley and Lewis discussed the latter's attempt to obtain evidence for use in his divorce action. Although he seemed annoyed because Lewis had not performed his duty better, Cooley was rational enough and calm enough to give him explicit instructions on the work he expected. When Lewis asked if his wife could hear the conversation, he replied, No, not at all. While the defendant was talking to Lewis, Melody kept looking out the window. She told her father that she thought she saw Mrs. McWhorter and didn't want her to come in the house. As she ran from the house, her father's parting words were, Melody, don't tell the police anything. If you do, I might have to kill you. After Melody left, Cooley cleaned up some of the blood. Later in the evening, Bobby Bennett arrived. She was accompanied by one Ed Borglund. The three discussed business affairs. Cooley did not mention anything about the victim during the business discussion, but he went into the bedroom on one occasion to look at the victim. When he returned to the living room, he told Bobby Bennett that she was hurt. Dorothy Davis arrived at the ranch around 11 p.m. No doctor or ambulance had been called. Cooley and Bobby met her at the front door and told her that the victim was in the bedroom. Dorothy Davis first called the Antelope Valley Hospital, then the Sheriff's Department, in search of an ambulance. She told a deputy sheriff she feared the victim was dead. An ambulance was dispatched to the Cooley Ranch. Dorothy claimed she advised the defendant to change his clothes. He was dressed at the time in tan trousers and socks. He put on a sport shirt, trousers, and cowboy boots, and put his blood-stained tan trousers in the washing machine. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Aisle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com slash merch now to check things out. Spade Cooley put in two pleas. He pleaded not guilty and also not guilty due to insanity. The following are actual excerpts of the court's reasoning for their decision to uphold the verdict the judge called down on Spade Cooley at the trial. He was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. He was not remanded to the prison usually allotted for murderers, which was San Quentin, but instead sent to the California State Prison, Vacaville, due to his frail heart condition. Spade Cooley's defense was twofold, the statement began. First, he claimed that the victim had suffered her fatal injuries as a result of an accidental fall in the shower. Secondly, he urged that he had no intent to kill his wife, as he had blacked out when he learned the details of her alleged sexual relationship with Davenport and Jackson. The first angle of this defense was completely discredited by the medical experts as well as the testimony of Melody as an eyewitness to the murder. The defendant's second theory of defense, the contention that upon learning of the details of her alleged affair with Davenport and Jackson, rockets went off in his head, and that he lost all consciousness of what he was doing and of his surroundings can scarcely stand up in view of the fact that he knew generally of these alleged matters weeks before the time of the killing. Cooley said that he had no conscious recollection of striking the victim, but that he must have done so, for she fell on the table and then to the floor. 
His next recollection, according to his testimony, was of the victims sitting on the bed in the bedroom. He remembers vividly all of the next few events. He said that she said to him, Now you think I don't love you, don't you? She took his cigarette and said, I'll show you how much I love you. He testified that, saying this, she opened her blouse and burned herself on the breast. Next, Cooley testified in detail to the victim's purported love cult confession. He stated he next recalls seeing her lying half on the floor and half on the bed, still conscious. As Melody would soon arrive, he asked Ella May if she wanted to take a shower and try and cleanse herself as much as she could. Cooley saw the victim walk into the bathroom, but did not see her go into the shower. The next sound he heard was a thud and breaking glass. He testified that he had no conscious recollection of what happened after he heard the crash. So he said he had no conscious recollection of what occurred while Melody was there. However, the defendant recalled, so he said, of telling Melody as she left the house that the victim was hurt badly from a fall in the shower and that she had burned herself on the breast with a cigarette. He also recalled cleaning away the blood in the shower and on the floor outside the shower with a rag sometime during the evening. And yet, Mr. Cooley asserts that his conduct was excusable as a result of provocation. In addition, the statement went on to say, Spade Cooley testified that at noon on the day of the tragedy, Ella May confessed that she had gone to a motel with both Davenport and Jackson. After this, the defendant conducted business affairs with apparent calmness. Cooley carried on a conversation with his private investigator and discussed business problems with Bobby Bennett after the injuries to Ella May were perpetrated. Furthermore, the prosecution based its claim of murder in the first degree primarily upon the theory that the facts showed murder by torture. Murder which is perpetuated by means of torture is automatically murder in the first degree. An intent that the victim should suffer may be inferred from the condition of the victim's body. The pictures and evidence and the expert testimony would lead the jury to infer that it was the defendant's intention that she should suffer cruelly. Some of the evidence cited shows past acts of physical violence committed by Cooley upon Ella May. Such evidence was properly admissible as showing the prior course of conduct of the defendant towards his victim. It tends to show motive and casts further light on the question of whether death was the result of the defendant's action or of an accident. It was for the jury to resolve conflicts in the evidence and to determine the inferences to be drawn. We conclude readily that there was overwhelming evidence of killing by torture and that murder was of the first degree. Spade Cooley was sentenced to life in prison, and that should be the end of the story, justice for all and whatnot. However, this story ends a bit differently. Ronald Reagan was elected governor of California in 1966. It wasn't long after he took office that his old friends from the Hollywood days started campaigning for the parole or pardon of their good buddy Spade Cooley. Cooley was proving to be a model inmate, so after less than eight years into his sentence, Reagan offers a parole, and in February of 1970, Cooley would be a free man. Four months before his release on parole, 
Cooley was invited to do a benefit concert and received a furlough to attend. His spirits were light, but was concerned how the audience would accept him. For the most part, people didn't want to believe that Spade Cooley was capable of committing such a heinous act. And when he finished his first set, he was rewarded with cheering and a standing ovation. During the intermission, Cooley was his happy, smiling self, completely surprised and relieved at his reception. He began to think that this was just the beginning, even going so far as to say, quote, I have a feeling that this is the first day of the rest of my life, end quote. No sooner did the words come out of his mouth that his smile slipped away. His fiddle fell to the floor. Spade Cooley died instantly of a heart attack. Justice for all and whatnot. To this day, as far as I could find, he is still the only convicted murderer that has a star on the Walk of Fame, thanks to his many years of film and television work and his many contributions to the Western swing genre. The foundation was laid on February 8, 1960. Who could have known what was to come and how drastically his life would have changed in only one year later? And just a few final thoughts on a tough topic before we come to a close today. In 1910, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that a wife had no cause for action on an assault and battery charge against her husband because it, quote, would open the doors of the courts to accusations of all sorts of one spouse against the other and bring into public notice complaints for assault, slander, and libel, end quote. Even though the individual states of Alabama and Maryland have passed laws that rescind the legal right of men to beat their wives and making wife beating a crime, punishable by 40 lashes or a year in jail, other states, such as North Carolina as of 1886, stated that criminal indictment cannot be brought up against the husband unless the battery is so great as to result in permanent injury, in danger of their life, or is malicious beyond all reasonable bounds. In the late 1800s, with Queen Elizabeth's rise to the English throne, women began to see some reform, such as wives can no longer be kept under lock and key, life-threatening beatings are considered grounds for divorce, and wives and daughters can no longer be sold into prostitution. Today, the FBI estimates that domestic violence crimes are committed at a rate of once every 15 seconds. According to conservative estimates, one million women are battered by an intimate partner annually. Because of the increase of awareness and women are finally feeling brave enough to step forward, this has led to changes in the criminal justice systems and rights for women's safety. Finally, in 1975, the majority of the U.S. states began to allow wives to bring criminal action against a husband who inflicts injury upon her, defining it as a crime. But it was in the 1990s with the passage of the Federal Violence Against Women Act, domestic violence is now considered a crime, justifying intervention by the criminal justice system. Ella May Evans Cooley did not have to die. Thank you for joining me this week on today's episode of Bag of Bones. That was a tough one. You never know what you're going to find when you dare to peek behind the curtain sometimes. If you're willing to see what's next, 
Be sure to join me here next week to see what I pull from the depths of my bag of bones. I'm Elizabeth Bouchery. Until next time. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises.